we are told to stay indoors, keep a mask on, you're not allowed to trade anything, and everything you've done is illegal. You have the virus that's like much more aggressive for old people, but the young people are bearing the brunt of that. You have crypto regulation created by people who don't understand crypto, or the young people who do, who aren't feeling like scared of it. So I feel like there's something off, and I do think young people are the most discriminated against minority in the United States today. All right, what's going on, everybody? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. This week, we're speaking with Richard Crabe. He's the founder of a really badass visionary project called Numeri. It is a decentralized hedge fund with a crypto dimension. It's absolutely fascinating. And he just published this week results from this hedge fund, which have been secret for years. They haven't been able to share the performance of this hedge fund. And he just published, they've been beating the market. And so he's built a really, really unique and visionary technology that is actually really succeeding. And he's a really cool dude all around. He's, uh, in general, I would say a pretty based kind of guy. Uh, we have some overlapping friends. So this interview was fun and easy because I got to, you know, talk with some of our mutual friends, uh, to get some, get some of the good questions I should ask him. Yeah. He's really cool. I'm a fan of his work. I'm a fan of the project for sure. It's a really visionary crypto project. Like that was built way before crypto was kind of cool and more, you know, um, acceptable, more kind of fashionable like it is in this current wave of its popularity. So yeah, we talked all about the concept of a decentralized truth machine. We talked about what Numeri looks like in the long run, if it does indeed become the only hedge fund in the world, which it might very well, if it, if it truly outperforms by combining the knowledge and, and insight and intelligence of, of many people around the world at the same time. We talked about his story building it, how he came from South Africa, how he found investors, how he pitched a, a really wild sounding project before crypto was well known and, and cool. And yeah, he also had a lot of interesting insights and heuristics when it comes to building companies, how he sees really challenging long-term projects, how he gets through the hard times like Numerai had some really tough times here and there, but he pushed through, he never pivoted, he never exited, he never just quit. Uh, we talked about why and how and how he thinks about those things. And there was a lot of good insight here for other people who are interested in building badass visionary tech projects outside of the Overton window or just outside of, you know, normalcy. So yeah, I really enjoyed this. I think you'll find a lot of insight here. And yeah, it's my pleasure to share with you this interview. Let me get out of the way now and we will get onto the show. But if you want to learn more about Richard Numeri or get involved in the data science competition that is at the core of the Numeri project. Um, if you're a data scientist, you can get paid to submit good predictions. You can go to just Numeri, that's numer.ai, so N-U-M-E-R.ai. I will put a link in the show notes. And also, if you want to see his recent write-up of the results, comparing the results of Numeri to other comparable hedge funds, I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. It's it's really pretty impressive. So without further ado, on to the show. All right. So Richard, Numeri is a crowdsourced hedge fund, but really in my view, it's, it's much more than that. And I think also in your view, it's potentially much more than that. From my perspective, it's really this kind of decentralized truth machine that is really kind of unlike any other project in crypto right now. So I'm really excited to have you here. I'm really excited to go into the details of the architecture and really what it means to constitute technologically a, a decentralized truth machine. We also have a bunch of other interesting topics to discuss. You actually just published 
some results for the very first time on the performance of Numeri, the the decentralized hedge fund. So it's a great time to have you on the podcast. We have so much to talk about. And first of all, I just want to basically thank you for being here. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks. Totally, totally. So if you wouldn't mind, why don't you just start off with, could you give us the origin story? I know that you're from South Africa. Could you just explain a little bit, like what was the story between South Africa and San Francisco? Like how, how did you, how, why, when, what brought you, you know, from where you were born and raised to being an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley? Yeah, well, I grew up in Cape Town. And um, when I was about eight years old, my dad gave me some stocks um, and so I used to follow stocks and business and, uh, entrepreneurship. Um, and so I obviously gravitated towards, um, you know, America. Uh, and so when I finished high school, I did one year at the university of Cape town and then moved to the United States to study mathematics. And so I majored in uh, pure mathematics. And then after that decided to try to apply that somehow. And around the time I graduated, machine learning had, you know, suddenly there were all these breakthroughs in machine learning, um, like big achievements in computer vision and things like that. And I was like, well, maybe I can pick that up because, you know, pure math is very abstract, but um, managed to pick it up quite quickly. And then I said, well, I should apply this to the stock market. And so managed to get a job as a quant, almost like an entrepreneur in residence in some way in Cape Town, where they just sort of gave me free reign. Um, and uh, very quickly found out it's quite a tough problem. It's very hard to use machine learning um, on financial market data. You kind of overfit immediately and your models don't work out of sample often. Um, so had to get very good at that and then decided, well, maybe I should start a company where you could give, we could give away all of our data and let anybody model it. And that's what Numerai is. It's a hedge fund that gives away all of its data and all the models we use come from people modeling the data who could be anywhere uh, or anybody. Right, right. And so the crypto dimension, that only gets added later? Yeah, so even when I was a quant, working as a quant, I was interested in crypto. Um, and some of my friends were talking to me about Bitcoin in like 2012. And then I heard about Ethereum and invested in Ethereum's crowd sale back in 2014, I think. And um, told all my friends to do it as well, but no one listened except for one. <laughs> uh, and then uh, it's when Ethereum launched. So Numeri launched before Ethereum, actually, um, in 2015. And then when Ethereum launched, it was like, uh, let's try to uh, use it. Um, and so the idea for staking on your models, which is what people do, they stake on the numeraire that they have, our token. They stake that on their models. That was a huge lift in performance. In fact, in a lot of ways, the company wasn't working um, without the idea of you putting skin in the game to say, I really do believe that this is a, a predictive model. Okay, fascinating. So what you were building actually turned out to be a really authentic use case for crypto. 
and you decide you decided to add that layer to it you found that it did in fact improve performance so this is great so why don't we just cut right to talking a little bit about the architecture just for people who who don't understand or maybe don't know the details my understanding is you basically distribute data which is obfuscated so it's all of this financial market data about companies equities i believe and although it's obfuscated so no one knows what companies are in the data set or even what the variables are you give out this massive data set and you allow data scientists anywhere in the world anyone who wants to participate data scientists can basically make predictions on that data then they submit those predictions and that gets combined into some kind of ensemble model i suppose on on the back end and these all of all of these predictions are used to generate actual predictions on out of sample data on the market itself. You have a fund of money that you're actually investing according to the dictates of this distributed uh, team of data scientists. And then based on how much people stake as data scientists, the, da the data scientists making these models stake numeraire, uh, based on how much they stake, they earn some kind of payout relative to the performance of their contributions, something like that. I'm sure you could do a better job of it. Yeah, so it's important to note that no one is giving their predictions to us, and a lot of people get confused by that. Um, we, well, sorry, they're only they're only giving their predictions. They're never giving their models or their model code. Um, so that's the key incentive driver here, because if they had, if we had all the model code on our on our servers, we wouldn't have any incentive to pay them. We could just take the code and uh, run their models. Um, but because of the relationship of their staking and they're only providing predictions, um, that actually kind of makes the relationship better where they have bargaining power and they can be like, well, look, you're not paying enough, so I'm going to quit. And then we lose that model. Um, so all those mechanics are sort of like market mechanics of staking and unstaking are also kind of like serving the whole system. Okay. Right. Fascinating. And was I right that data scientists get paid out uh, as a function of their the accuracy of their model or the, the predictive leverage of their model? Yeah. How much they want, how much they've risked on the stake is one component and then how accurate their model is. And another piece is how uncorrelated their model is from uh, everyone else. And that's a key idea in this, right? Like if everybody likes the same stock, Often that's not what investing is about. It's like it's about um, having a, some kind of contrarian ideas too. And if you have if you have an incentive to have uncorrelated contrarian ideas, um, then then you start to get really intelligent. Um, and uh, and that's what's happening now. Like with we have over three thousand models, and the the people have staked over thirty million dollars in our token on them. And so there's just like this huge incentive to like not mess up. Um, and so the models are just getting better and better and better every week. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's absolutely fascinating. And you just published today for the first time uh, or last night, I think, or in the past few days, you just published for the first time the results. And it looks to me like you've been beating the market uh, for some time now. And the, if you compare the performance of, of Numeri to uh, similar hedge funds in the, the traditional world, you're actually dominant. Is that fair to say? Or give us the summary of, of the results for the first time that you've published performance. Yeah, so we're a market neutral hedge fund and we have beat 
the market neutral index. And what's market neutral mean? People don't know this. So um, I often think it's interesting when people, you read about a hedge fund, right? And you hear like a hedge fund with 100 PhDs or something only made 8% in a year. And you're like, what the hell? The market went up 100% uh, in the same period. Why is this hedge fund doing so badly? And they're using leverage and shorts and all kinds of things. And you're like, why, why is everyone I know beating this hedge fund? Um, so that's because uh, these hedge funds are very different kinds of animals. They are designed to never have any beta, where beta means exposure to the market. So the way they don't have exposure to the market, every time they go long a stock, they also go short a stock. Every time they go long a tech stock, they also short a tech stock so that they're sector neutral. So they try to be country neutral, sector neutral, factor neutral. And they're supposed to be these sort of bulletproof things that don't crash in a market crash. And, you know, famous last words. Uh, they did in the COVID-19 COVID crash, like March 2020, when the market crashed. Um, some of the hedges, you know, helped, but some of these market neutral funds really messed up. So Renaissance, uh, one of the biggest hedge funds, they have a fund for institutional investors that was down 32%. It was by far the worst year they've had in like a decade. Um, and... Our fund was up 7% seven in that same year. Um, and in the period of all the volatility, we were down very little. Um, so it's quite interesting that like we didn't expect that like Numeri would be so good that we could beat, beat Renaissance um, by sort of 40% in our first, um, first like main year of trading. Um, so... And then we're doing it again this year where we're beating, beating our peers this year too. So the outperformance is really, really strong. Um, and, but it's still not, it's not a lot to write home about in some way. So the fund in this year is up like 9%, uh, 10%, something like that. And the, the fund last year was up 7%. But our competitors that are neutral like us uh, are down about 30%. Right. So, I, I mean, I would say that's a lot to write home about because sure, the, 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 the gains are not massive, but the downside is so capped that that's the, that's the, that's why they exactly. call it a hedge. That's why they call it a hedge fund. And that's cool. That's the point. That's, right. So it's very pure, pure in that way. It's doing exactly its job. It's not so, correlated with the market. All the right. Peers. Right. So if you're able to sustain th th this market beating performance as a hedge fund, then in the long run, does Numeri become the only hedge fund in the world as it just absorbs all of the market for that kind of hedged portfolio? Yeah, it, uh, it does. It, it should attract capital um, as it outperforms. Um, and a lot of capital is leaving um, quant due to how badly it performed recently as a whole sector. And so billions are being redeemed from Renaissance and from AQR, and that money has to go somewhere. Uh, regrettably, it might be going into um, completely out of the whole quant sector, so it's not coming to us just yet. Um, but there's always a place for a fund like this 
in a in a market neutral the in a in a big allocators portfolio because they need to diversify if you have 30 billion dollars it's very easy to go buy some bitcoin go buy some s&p 500 go buy some venture capital funds right you can just do that and you'll get you can get those products for cheap but then what are you going to do with your kind of cash portion you don't want to hold cash because you're getting almost you know negative real, uh, but you also don't want to have too much volatility because you actually need the money from this endowment or pension fund from time to time. So it's really smart to have like 5% or 10% or something like that in a cash-like product. And a market-neutral hedge fund is that. We're not volatile. We don't draw, we're not supposed to draw down 50%. Uh, uh, and so our volatility is like half the S&P uh, at the moment. Right. Okay. Fascinating. So in the long run, if you keep beating the market like this, it could very well be, as I think you like to say, the, the last hedge fund. It, it could absorb all of the market for uh, this type of hedge fund. And so that's absolutely fascinating. And and I'm curious to know when you first built Numerai back in 2015 when it launched, I mean, that was pretty early. Like that was before any of this current uh, kind of wave of popular crypto enthusiasm. So, I mean, how did you pitch this to investors? Like I'm imagining it must have sounded insane to a lot of people. Like did a lot of people laugh at you? Like get the fuck out of here. This sounds retarded. <laughs> or like yeah. how, how, did, how did, yeah. So tell us the story of like the the environment in which you you developed this and, and how did you communicate in a way that didn't sound totally ridiculous? It was hard. Um, people didn't, didn't get it. I mean, there were people were talking about fintech in 2015, but this was so different to that. I mean, a lot of fintech I see is basically like plumbing. It's like you figured out a way to like, like say a Robinhood or something. You've got a connection with an exchange and you've got a nice user interface and an app. What's the technology there? Like no offense, but like that's not predicting the future. Um, so Numerai was very weird and you had to know three things to even begin to understand it. Like you had to know about crypto and then you had to know about quantitative finance and then you had to know about machine learning and very hard to meet an investor that knew all three in 2015. And um, how did you meet them? Like, tell us a story of how did you find the right people who could actually believe in that? Maybe even give us some details on like who they were or whatever you can share. Well, I happened to meet the co-founder of Renaissance Technologies. So he was the, you know, he, the Renaissance was managing like a hundred billion dollars or something at the time I met him. Um, I always started explaining quantitative finance to him and I didn't realize who he was. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, uh, and he ended up basically, he was a venture capitalist working at uh, first round. He had Bitcoins. He had a bunch of allocations in different quant funds. And so he just got it. He And he understood AI. So he he was the perfect person to meet. Um, and they end up leading our seed round. Um, but things were still punchy. I mean, again, this is still like before Ethereum had launched. So... And is this while uh, you're in South Africa or after you moved to the States? It was like I moved to the U.S. and then pretty much had like three months worth of cash to do Numerai. So I tried to make the website in the first month and then uh, managed to raise money 
kind of with a week with a week of cash left uh and uh yeah didn't think we'd ever need more than like the million dollars we raised in our seed round but we ended up spending a lot more money over the over the years yeah that's fascinating that reminds me of something i wanted to ask you which is i i kind of heard from some of our mutual friends i, I heard if you don't mind me bringing this up that uh you know num- numeri had some tough times I, I believe there were one or two times where things looked really tough and um you you have a somewhat legendary uh, tenacity and and persistence i don't know if you know that but but you do so i would love to learn a little bit more about you know maybe tell us a story about um some of some of the the hard times for for numeri and what happened how you got out of that and i'm just kind of curious to to learn more yeah well um i'm, I'm definitely very committed to it and so there have been a lot of times where it might have been sensible to quit or something like that um and even had invest sometimes when an investor said, you should really pivot. You should do this. You should do that and not do the, the master plan, which is you know what I'm only interested in doing. So we've had, I mean, we've had like when Numerare launched, uh, we've had, we had a period where it fell about 99%. Um, so it went from something like $160 to $2.50. And crypto had basically almost like dried up. And um, we were simultaneously having this 99% run almost in our coin. And our fund was, wasn't working. Uh, and we had employee turnover. Um, and so there were like all these things going wrong. And like the whole quant industry was getting really weak. It was called Quant Winter. We started a quant company in Quant Winter. And that winter never went away. Uh, uh, but crypto winter, we also had to live through. And that luckily went away. Um, but yeah, we had like very little. Um, it's such a complicated company that it's not really like your VC type of thing. And so we had the Union Square Ventures lead our A round. Uh, but I talked to some VCs in 2018 and I was like, you know, uh, can you give us this valuation? And they were like, well, how much revenue do you have? And we are like, none. Uh, and uh, is it going to work? You know, and, and it's just very hard to explain why it would work, um, except from just the first principles. Like, we are going to have more intelligence because we're going to have all those, these people and we're going to have more data. And so in the long run, we're going to outperform. And that pitch was just too, like, abstract and i was like we might not have the configuration of everything correct but once we do those first principles will you know come into play um so there's been times where i've had to i've i've invested in the company in our we've sold nmr uh where i bought a bunch of nmr from the company to kind of keep the company going i think this was like end of 20 18, um, bought, uh, in with a round with paradigm and placeholder. Um, so, and then I've also had, you know, money in the fund the whole time. So I've, I, I think it's important to be this way if you're doing an, if you're an entrepreneur and there's a culture developing of like kind of doing it another way where you can sell your shares, uh, in your very first round, you sell your shares or something. I'm a net buyer of our coin, net buyer of our shares, net buyer of our fund product. 
Uh, and I think that's the way to, to do it. And, and that, mm, I mean, do you have any kind of frameworks or heuristics for like what gets you through those tough times? I mean, for people who build really visionary products that take a very long time to, to bring to fruition, there are going to be lots of, um, you know, uh, starts and stops and, and trials and tribulations. Are there certain, you know, I don't know, ideas that your mind goes back to or certain, you know, uh, mantras of some kind, like what, what, what are the ideas that, that, uh, keep you going through that when lots of people would just choose to pivot or would just choose to shut it down or whatever? Yeah, I think the, I, I'm, uh, some of the stuff Elon Musk says on this is very good. I mean, one thing I've, I always remember is like, if I, if you feel stressed, it's like this flight or fight response thing you can have, and you can get anxious and stop biting your nails or something. If you start to feel that way, you are basically uh, hallucinating. Like you're not, you're not comprehending the world as it is. And in actual fact, you are in like in the deep 1% of uh, pop population in, in terms of wealth. You're sitting in an air conditioned room with unlimited food um, and you don't have a care in the world. Any of this like feeling of, I feel overwhelmed, that's just a, psychological like temporary thing you can always solve problems um so i think those those are nice to remember um and you know my worst case outcome would be numerai doesn't work somehow and uh, i just go sit on the beach in cape town for a year and uh think about what to do next or something. so it's you gotta like realize how lucky we all are and financial risk is the fact that financial risk gives people the feeling of physical danger risk is a is a, just a distortion um, and it's not real. Wow, I love that. That's great. And so in the long run, is Numerai really a backdoor to building AI? And if so, Riff on this with me a little bit. I mean, extra let's extrapolate from a world in which Numerai is fully developed. It's the dominant hedge fund in the world. How how does this manifest outward? Does, does it expand into subsidiary products? Does the basic logic of the architecture get cross-applied to other domains? Think this through with me if yeah. you would. So, I mean, one thing that I've that's interesting is like we've paid out to our users over $90 million um, in prizes. So where does that money go? Maybe it's going into building better models even further. Um, and so when, you know, when we pay users, they can afford to buy more servers to model the data. They can afford to, um, just like a Bitcoin mine or something, the more Bitcoins they mine, the more computers they can do buy to mine Bitcoins. Um, and it's kind of like that. And then you look how many, you know, people are mining Bitcoin now. Well, how many resources are dedicated to that? So by sort of having this prize out there that if you can get good at solving this problem, you will win a lot of money. Uh, it actually captures resources from around the world in this decentralized way. And suddenly you have this growing intelligence um, that uh, that is kind of like unstoppable. Um, and so, although 
uh, you know, what people are mainly modeling with the financial stock market, it's definitely more in the world of predictive models versus like um, AGI agents or something like that. Um, it's nevertheless going to be very, very, very intelligent, narrow AI. And it's going to be really, really good at, you know, and accurate at predicting the markets. So how is Numerai different than prediction markets? And maybe just reflect a little bit on on your take on prediction markets. I mean, is is Numerai like an architecture that could be applied to different domains? Like, could I make it a Numerai but for X, where maybe X is, let's say, uh, political events or something like that? I want I want I want to I want to predict uh, rare political events like a civil war breaking out in some country or something like that. Do you see do you see kind of verticalized numerized that are specialized around predicting particular topics or something like that? Or um, are, are prediction markets a superior architecture for different problem sets? If you just could riff on any of that. Yeah, I think that we, I mean, prediction markets are very interesting. And, but yeah, Numerai is very focused on financial markets. Um, and like, I think the, there's a good reason for that where like, if you can be a little bit better, if you can have a, a 3% edge instead of a 2% edge, it matters so much in finance. But if you were trying to do something else, like learn about the politics of a certain country or whatever, um, you wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be so quantitative and so like sharp, this like this idea, like a little, being a little bit better would have a large impact. Um, so I, I think we're going to focus on, on that. Nevertheless, I do think, um, prediction markets are somehow, you know, uniquely crypto, like the idea of we're, we're using the staking market, people staking, taking their stake off. That is part of the information, right? Like the fact that someone wants to stake a lot means we should trust them more. And the same thing is true in a prediction market. If someone's buying a lot of Trump's going to win coins, um, then that implies they are bidding, they believe that. And so there's like this spin-off benefit from having the market that the there's intelligence blossoming out of the, the market that everyone gets to benefit from. So something I'm curious about is when we think about Numerai in, in a long-run equilibrium, when it is the only hedge fund in the world, Aren't there aren't the data scientists going to mostly converge on the a few kind of optimal models? Like where 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 does the edge come from in 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 the steady state? Like is there are do, do you do you suspect in the steady state there's like three dominant data science firms that are the dominant winners in in the Numerai pool? Is there going to be a long tail of of data scientists who are getting positive returns from contributing to to the ensemble model? Uh, I'm just kind of curious how you think it pans out in, in the very long run. Yeah, um, it's uh, those are very good questions. I mean, we've actually have a guy who recently he went to one of our coin investors. So there's a fund called Pantera that bought Numeraire, our coin, and he's a data scientist on Numerai. And he went to Pantera and said, um, why don't you lend me your coins? And I will stake them and then I'll give you a yield. 
Um, and then now suddenly this one user has like $5 million of NMR being staked. Um, and the next highest user is like half a million dollars. So this, this is an interesting um, dynamic where maybe there is going to be some consolidation where people are like, you know what? I'm just going to throw in with Numero. I'm going to make this like my job and I'm going to make like little company around it, which is what this company has done called CrowdSend. Um, but uh, so it's good and bad in some way, like maybe the users don't want it to be so concentrated. Uh, but right. But the, aside from that, which is a new development, it is very um, much, you know, uh, there are a lot of unique models that, and a lot of people staking, you know, 10 NMR, one NMR, um, and they all help. And the reason they can continue to help um, and that there's not just convergence into one model is because the data increases. So just recently, we announced that we increased the size of our data by three times. So there's three times more features and four times more rows. So it's a much bigger data set. And so what now can happen is when you have more features, you can have more creativity. So you can have one user who says, you know what, I'm gonna take these five or 10 features and think about these and get really good at these before I look at the other ones. And I'm gonna model this target instead of that target. And so the more data in there is, the more benefit there is to the whole crowdsourcing approach. If we had just two features, we would just make a model on that ourselves. There's nothing to really do. Um, but the more data there is out there, which is growing, um, the more we would, the, we're going to benefit from crowdsourcing. And that, that's where it's getting very interesting. In the last few weeks, the performance of the models has just been off the charts um, because uh, of the new data set release. Okay, fascinating. Because, yeah, one might think that in the long run, it's like the data science models are might become something of a commodity. It's like you, you can only do so well with the with the modeling. People converge on the optimal models and there's only so many of them. And then it's just a matter of like who who has the most capital, I guess, behind it. But you're basically saying that so long as the data is always expanding, then there's always um, new alpha to be found in different pockets. And, and it's it's feasible for, for there to be uh, many different players kind of uh, extracting alpha from like different portions of the of the expanding data set exactly and um and yeah the it increases like the sort of set of possible models is exponentially increasing in feature space so the more, more features what if you have one more feature then suddenly there's exponentially more um, model possibilities similarly we also have another thing um called numeri signals uh which is where you can bring any of your own data to build your model. So uh, those models can be really weird because they're not even potentially not even using any of the types of data we use. Um, so that's another angle where another vector for intelligence to, to reach the hedge fund. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, cause I thought all of the data was obfuscated. So how do you bring your own data in? Yeah, so all the data on Numerai is obfuscated, and that's what most people are modeling. But we made another thing 
about a year ago called numerized signals, which is basically like, if you're a quant, you already have your own data, you already have, you already know how to do quant, um, you, and you already have a signal, send that to us and stake it just like you would on Numeri. So on signals, you kind of know what you're staking on. On Numeri, you don't because it's obfuscated. Um, but there are a couple of people out there, including this firm that I mentioned, CrowdSend, um, that, that actually have and like their, their own models that they've made from various data sources. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, very interesting. So we should probably talk a little bit about regulation in crypto because this is seems to be a looming topic, perhaps a looming threat, depending on how you think about it. In, in particular, there's now you know been a lot of squawking from people like Gary Gensler or you know Elizabeth Warren. There, there's now a lot of discussion in the air around some kind of possible crackdown on crypto in the United States as the founder of a company that deals with crypto. And I think Numerare uh, is something like somewhere around one of the top 100 tokens in market cap, somewhere around there. How are you thinking about the regulatory environment right now in crypto in the United States? Um, it is, yeah, it is quite uh, difficult to be a, an entrepreneur um, in crypto uh, in the U S I mean, I had a friend recently uh, tell me the first question he asks, uh, he's an, he's a VC. The first question he asks any DeFi entrepreneur is what other passports do you have? Um, because this, the, the, pro the probability of maybe needing to get out of America seems to be very high. Um, but what I think is strange is that it's been so long that we've had crypto. I mean, and the, the, what people talk about is the lack of guidance. Um, uh, there, there's some SEC people who've, who've made conflicting statements with other ones. Um, there, there seemed like a very good way of doing things for a while with um, doing safes, the site, safts rather, like, uh, and then that seemed to be legal. And then that seemed to be really not, not okay. Um, uh, so... We have tried to do the best we can um, to avoid the whole issue because we are trying to use blockchain for its real purpose, which I think is coordinating people in a decentralized way. Bitcoin making the mining incentives so the whole world starts mining Bitcoin. Numerai making the staking incentives so the whole world can start helping the market get more efficient. We don't mind that much what the price of NMR is. Um, as long as that happens, right? As long as we get this intelligence. So we did, for example, we gave away Numeraire. We never sold it in uh, an ICO. We just gave it to our users. And I think uh, the SEC could have made a statement like, if you ever give your cryptocurrency away, that's fine. But they haven't even made that statement. Um, because uh, they could say, well, even if you gave it away, uh, we now think it's a security. Or So there's, th that's what's sad, is that entrepreneurs don't know. And you'd be surprised how much people want to follow the regulations, how many hours and how much money my friends here in Silicon Valley 
who have these companies have spent like millions of dollars on legal fees just to know and to try to understand what they are or aren't allowed to do. Right. I mean, at what point do you think it's just in everyone's interest to just pick up and go to another country? Like, is this something you think about? Is this something you talk about? Uh, what, I mean, what do you think? I mean, there's a lot of kind of brazenness right now coming out uh, from people like Brian Armstrong, who, you know, recently tweeted about the SEC being sketchy. Uh, as you cited, Elon Musk, you know, has said in public that he just doesn't respect the SEC. And I, I think I agree with you that there's just a lot of uh, kind of impatience and dissatisfaction with the regulatory regime. People are kind of feeling prohibited and people are not sure what they can act on or what they can't. And yet they're trying and it's wasting a lot of time and it's wasting so much time and energy uh, and potential to be tiptoeing around all these uh, regulatory uncertainties. Like, does it just make sense for everyone building cool shit to just take their ball and go somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think for some people abroad that they can't believe that the American entrepreneurs put up with it. Um, and I, but I think, you know, I came, I love America. I came here to do this company and I want the benefits of this company to reach the American markets. I believe we can transform the financial markets and make a quantitative fund that's way better than all of the other ones. And I think we've already proved we can do, we can do it. Like it's possible we could be the ones to do it. So why make it hard for us? Well, maybe, you know, some of the people at the SEC have have boyfriends or wives or something that are at the, the incumbent hedge funds. Um, so it's, uh, but it is sad to have, especially if you have the best American, the best entrepreneur in the world, like Elon, like you say, saying, I do not respect the SEC. And people putting that on Twitter, I do not respect the SEC. Uh, it's not good to have the the culture like, and Elon's like the best guy, right? He's like the saving the world guy. It's not good to have the culture like turn on the regulators. The regulators should be trying to understand why that why that culture has turned on them, because none of these people are inherently bad. Like Brian Armstrong is like the nicest most thoughtful, careful entrepreneur when it comes to regulation. So they're in a bad spot, I think. And it's not going to be good if um, they do regulate Coinbase or something because there'll be millions of people affected immediately um, by the protection would actually wipe out their, their Coinbase balances. When we talked a few weeks ago, you made an interesting comment around this related to a kind of intergenerational warfare that seems to maybe be happening right now. We ha we have this kind of boomer gerontocracy, which is seems to be kind of overwhelmingly the source of these regulatory constraints. Is there some kind of underlying intergenerational war here where the, the, the gerontocracy is really just trying to suppress the potential of, of young people today? Or how do you read that? I think this, it's, it is happening. Uh, so when you are a young entrepreneur and you have just, you know, studied like I did, studied mathematics, learned about technology. You are so excited that you're in a, you're now in a generation where you get to use the latest technologies that are out there to do something cool, right? Um, and blockchain is the one of the key technologies of our generation and we want to use it. 
and we know how, and we're not afraid of it, um, and we are told to basically uh, stay indoors, keep a mask on, uh, and uh, you're not allowed to trade anything, uh, and and everything you've done is illegal, um, and it's like really sad, uh, and I don't like how. And by the way, yeah, and then you have the virus. It's like much more aggressive for old people, but the young people are bearing the brunt of that. You have crypto regulation, which created created by people who don't understand crypto, or the young people who do, who aren't feeling like scared of it. Um, so I feel like there's something off, and I do think young people are the most discriminated against. Uh, minority in the United States today. Yeah, it's a fascinating take, and I, I think I think it's there's a lot to that. There's also weird amounts of informal nepotism and cronyism within this kind of you know boomer uh, gerontocratic uh, regulatory lobby. Basically, you know, I, you know, right? Like a lot of these people, whether they're in the SEC or they're you know on Wall Street or they're in Congress or whatever, like a lot of these people move in overlapping circles. And uh, isn't there a kind of shared consciousness around, you know, like our traditional world and all of our power and income and status, which, which is based on these like old school paper based um, analog uh, power structures, like they have a kind of shared sense that all of their power and income and status is under threat from these technologies. And aren't they kind of engaged in this, this kind of nepotistic, cronyistic, um, game to basically just stifle everyone outside of their circles and prevent them from, you know, building all the amazing cool shit that could be built actually really rapidly now if they just did it. Yeah, I think, well, so first of all, I think they, they don't have any bad intentions. I don't think there's no bad intentions. Um, it's just, it's just hard because they read some of these laws and they're like, well, my job is to uh, you know, this is part of the public policy that was built up in the United States. We have to, we have to follow these by the letter. Um, let's under, try to understand crypto and, and and apply all these laws directly to it. So there's something where it's it's not an easy job to regulate this, and this does seem like there should be some regulation. Um, but it's uh, it's it's the the sad part is like how easy it is to do these things in crypto. So for example, like how, look at the institution, like the New York stock exchange, how, how many lines of code is Uniswap? It's like a couple of hundred, I would imagine the key co code that lets you swap tokens. That little bit of code has, and has billions of dollars of volume every day that little bit of code is identical to, to a young person is identical to the, can, can perform the same function as this giant building with like thousands of people eating donuts and uh, going to work every day. But, and doing uh, mad uh, cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, I remember when I was starting thinking about blockchain, like back in 2016, I was talking to friends about, could we put all the, all the stocks on the blockchain? And we could, even then, like I, <laughs> yeah. we knew how to. So we can write a few lines of code and do that. 
Um, but we're definitely not allowed to do that. So now a bunch of Korean people are doing it or a bunch of Japanese people, a bunch of, and it's scary because, you know, there are reasons we have stocks and regulations around stocks, but like, it's just sad that it's actually unbelievably easy to make transformational technologies and we're, we've been banned from doing them for so long. Yeah. You know what we need? I feel like in the United States is we need just one state to create a special zone where you can basically build any type of financial technologies with no laws, basically. It's like any anything you can build goes, just give us one state in the country where people can base their companies and build anything. And I think that would be I think that would be really good because then yeah. what, what works what what works could spread to the rest of the country. What turns out to be a Ponzi or some some nonsense will just fail and it'll be it'll be contained. Yeah, well, but the problem is it's all on the internet, right? So someone's if that I don't know how that maybe they block IP addresses or something. But like right, right. I'm just saying if the United States is going to own any of the upside of the really revolutionary technologies of the future, it's got to create some kind of uh, special permissions for people to actually be on the forefront of things because it, it is it is a real problem actually. So okay, so. This is this is very interesting. I mean, how do you think about the the kind of next stages of all of this? Like, do you I'm kind of personally in in the camp that says I think generally on today given the speed with which technology advances and just the the scale of innovation that we're talking about, I think it's kind of so many light years faster and so many light years uh, ahead of the the traditional paper-based uh, regulatory bureaucracies that, frankly, I don't, I don't even think the U.S. government has the state capacity to actually enforce significant regulation across this uh, blooming, chaotic world of crypto. So I'm kind of personally in the camp that says I, I really doubt that the U.S. could even enact a significant crackdown if they decided to. And the gridlock and, and you know, uh, deliberation and bureaucracy is so bad that it'll be probably years before they even decide on anything. And and even if they decided to crack down, I honestly don't think they, they have the capacity. It's all so broken. It's all, the whole bureaucracy is so, uh, weighty and slow and, and, and broken and, and fundamentally gridlocked and useless that frankly, I kind of think, um, entrepreneurs will, uh, do what they want and, I personally think that crypto is going to become big enough, fast enough that it's going to reach a kind of escape velocity where the U.S. government kind of just has to like uh, go along for the ride, whether whether they want to or not. But people will accuse me of being like way too optimistic and not realistic on, on that perspective. So um, what do you think moving forward? Like if you had to kind of place your own bets, I think they have the yeah, they have the they definitely have the power to put some dampener on things. I mean, they can definitely mess up Coinbase somehow. Um, but but popular. Richard, if they if if they did crack down, like people would just move to another country, right? Like we have enough rich people, like we have enough crypto rich people in the United States uh, that if if the crackdown was strong enough, wouldn't Coinbase just move? Wouldn't uh, you just move? Wouldn't everyone who's like really invested in technology and innovation, uh, especially in crypto, wouldn't they just move? They would, but they but they could maybe can't move with their companies. I mean, like what could could Brian just quickly? move all the intellectual property of Coinbase into Switzerland? Like, no, it doesn't, they don't let you do that. Um, he could move himself. 
Um, oh, you can't just move a company because of like yeah, that? No. Okay. Especially a public company. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know enough about that shit. So yeah, there's a lot <laughs> I, of IP I appreciate, stuff I appreciate you. Yeah. Where they basically, right. the US government kind of sees, sees themselves as the owners of the IP. Okay. Um, fascinating. Right. But yeah. So, I, but the, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they, they don't like how, I think the crackdown stuff wouldn't, it definitely correlated with bubbles, the, or at least rising prices, I should say. So, $2 trillion is how much you know crypto is out there. A lot of it's fake, but whatever. People are using that number. That is a lot of money. And they 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 used to find it cute that a Silicon Valley uh, uh, company, you know, made maybe $30 million because they sold their company to Facebook or something. That doesn't seem that doesn't mess with power. But two trillion dollars is very, very, very significant. And um so many of these funds and my friends are like, I mean, almost everybody I've met here is a billionaire <laughs> from crypto. It's so weird. Um, so yeah, the, it's, and it, and, and it could 10x in it and it could 10x in a year and then it's 20 trillion and it's like, whoa, um, not saying that will happen, but that starts to be very, very, very dangerous in terms of like that, yeah, losing power. And we also, the crypto people are just weirdly um, all in. <laughs> like they are, they are price inelastic. If, if the price 10 X is, they will still not sell. Um, it's like, you know, GameStop on steroids. So even some of my friends with some of these big crypto funds have never redeemed a single uh, bit of money out of their funds. Fascinating. You mentioned GameStop, and this is a kind of very interesting talking point at the moment. There have been all of these instances of kind of liberated mass populist uh, financial manias, which, which are very fascinating. Uh, people realize that on the internet with memes and a little bit of community coordination, that people can actually move markets together in a decentralized way if they want to. And it's been very interesting to watch this unfold and watch this kind of come into uh, a kind of self-consciousness in, in, in certain communities like on Reddit. How do you think this merges with crypto? Because in a way, it was not that hard to put, uh, you know, to basically put, you know, the clamp down on the, the GameStop uh, phenomenon, that particular episode organized around the Wall Street Bets subreddit. It was fairly easy to just kind of, um, snuff that out because it was based, it was, you know, happening on the traditional markets with traditional apps, but there's gotta be a not too distant future where what we saw with wall street bets actually takes place in decentralized finance, where in principle, there's no plug to pull potentially. How do you, uh, how, how do you think about that? What do you expect to see on that front? Is this going to accelerate and become even more ungovernable um, in, in, in DeFi is 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 there an interesting connection between this and Numeri? Like, do do populist um, crowdsourced meme stocks uh, link up somehow in the long run with, um, you know, uh, the kind the kind of AI that uh, Numeri pretends pretends to be? Uh, how do you think about any of this? Yeah, well, we're definitely not trying to, um, you know, do that type of trading, right? We're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're very good actors in the market. Um, we even shorted GameStop a little bit only at the top. Um, uh, so we're not on the side of the GameStop guys, but 
it is um it's very powerful at to see you know what how how severe these distortions can be and i think if you a lot of some of my friends are like from wall street who are like well we've all heard of short squeezes this wasn't a big deal um no it really really was a big deal and if they pushed it further if they could have pushed it further i think if they like 2x'd it from its peak or something it would have gotten worse much worse for the hedge funds like two sigma's fund was down eight percent that month that's a quant fund that's like a diversified quant fund it affected everything it wasn't just one hedge fund who had a GameStop short um so it is a definite kind of like it, it, what, what what they discovered is that they is very scary like they've they've got uh right they they found the exact right weakness in the system um but I don't think, but obviously I'm not, I don't want to destroy the U.S. financial system. I want to improve it. Uh, I'm not a nihilist uh, yet. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to make it better. And so we are, you know, we trade lots of stocks, small positions, nothing, nothing too weird. Right, right. But I'm sure you've, you've given a lot of thought to these kinds of decentralized systems. So I'm, you, you must have some interesting, uh, intimations, intimations of the future, especially when it comes to, you know, if you imagine that the wall street bet subreddit played out their drama on a decentralized exchange, for instance, where there wouldn't have been these points, these points of power to apply, uh, pressure to, you know, what does the financial system look like in the long run when it's radically decentralized and where there can be these coordinated market manipulation attacks from like one team versus another team? I mean, how do you what should we expect on that front or what does it mean? Maybe. Yeah, well, um, it'll definitely get very weird in the sort of five or 10 year horizon. I mean, just a point on the on the GameStop thing, you know, you know, the whole T plus two settlement. And that's the reason why, you know, they I'm have, not sure it's basically like um, tra trade settle t two days later. So when you buy a stock, you don't actually settle. You have, it takes two days. Oh, right. Okay. And that's another thing where, like, imagine if you were uh, 18 years old and you're like, what are you talking about? That it takes two days. What is happening in, during those two days? Why? Like, it's just so crazy to to the world looks so antiquated to people who are in technology and we can all fix it. Um, but yeah, let's say in the de in decentralized world, you're obviously already seeing some of this type of thing with like NFTs where it's like, can we meme a meme into becoming financially like really high price? And you've saw this with like recently with like loot or whatever reached like a billion dollars, Axie Infinity, these types of things are like everyone's a lot of people concerned, like there are people getting duped, like they're losing, they, 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 they're, they're getting tricked. They're not getting tricked. They just don't believe they're the greater fool um, just yet. Uh, so the, that kind of thing is happening big time and it's very coordinated. Like you get a discord, you put up some NFTs and you make $3 million dollars. Uh, selling, selling some cats. Um, so yeah, a lot of people I know have done this. Um, it's kind of sad. The brightest, 
uh, CS student I know did a did an NFT. Uh, it took him five days. He sold three million dollars worth of of it. Turned it all into fiat, and uh, and the, that's the thing he's doing. And this is the kind of guy who can build a bank or a stock market or a hedge fund. He's just that's that part is illegal. That's you know, the SEC will go after that. At the moment, the SEC isn't going over going after art, <laughs> so everybody's forced to make art and pretend it's an interesting piece of technology, but it isn't. And the, the NFTs are not going to take over the big banks. Um, that's a distortion created by the SEC. The SEC is responsible for the NFT boom because they banned productive activity from the young, by young people. That's a fascinating view. So it's basically forcing people in your view to invest all of their intelligence and creative powers into the world of art because the world of art is this it's it, it's this separate vertical that's seen as apart from finance it's seen as apart from all these messy kind of securities laws but the world of art it's just art right and so people are people who are really interested in innovation and and operating on this cutting edge are putting all of their effort into making cat nfts and things like this that's exactly. interesting and they're doing the exact right thing for their economic value uh, so it's sort of like the right capitalism is telling them to do that. Um, but it wouldn't be telling them to do that if they could do something else. Do you remember the, the DAO, the first, the, you know, DAO? The hack, the Ethereum. Ethereum hack, yeah. You know, the first thing they wanted to invest in? So the DAO was considered a security, by the way. The first thing they wanted to invest in was an electric car company in France, I think. So you have these young people, they use technology to invest in an electric car company in France, that's completely illegal. That's, that's banned. So they now have to make fake NFTs because that's legal. Um, okay, so would you like, do you like this regulated world? Like- so is it, is it an implication of of this perspective that the NFT market right now is is a kind of bubble? It's in hype, and once there's more regular regulatory clarity around all the other cool things you can build in crypto, that that would, by implication, suck steam out of the NFT market, which is kind of, in your view, currently being uh, kind of hoisted up by by the constraints on what can be done elsewhere. Yes, if you're if young people are allowed to, for example, go to bars to meet people. Uh, that would be one thing that might suck some of the NFT bubble app down. Oh, interesting. Okay, so so that's fascinating. So basically, you're saying these two separate forces that are just constraining human potential exactly. the, the the lock the lockdowns and the regulatory environment are manifesting as this uh, mania around NFTs. That's fascinating. The SEC created the board apes, made us board apes. <laughs> That's, do you think they're buying up the board apes too? <laughs> like on, <laughs> no. on the background, they don't know what they, they don't know about these. Yeah, they don't know negative externalities, but they, they yeah, shouldn't they be worried about them. They don't know what they're doing, right? Uh, they, they know not what they do. 
a famous person once said. So, okay, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Maybe just a few somewhat random questions just to, to finish off in a fun way, if you don't mind. I, I believe that um, uh, David Deutsch's book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity, is uh, a, a book that influenced you a lot. I'm curious, what did you learn from that book? What's so nice about it is that it's um, so well argued, but also so optimistic. Uh, so I found it like put human endeavors into a, like a very important part of physics in some way. Like if you were thinking about um, modeling the world, you couldn't do it without knowing about human. You wouldn't have a good model if, if you didn't know about human uh, potential. Um, so our whole physical reality is different because of the knowledge we've, we've created. And uh, David's book really, yeah, makes you, makes you think. And it's very inspiring for that reason. I mean, is, is, it, is it too much of a stretch to say that Numerai is like something of an application of that or, or an extension of it that? Is. Or? I think it is. Yeah. Numerai is like, it's, it's we are trying to make a growth of knowledge, a, a, you know, through um, conjecture, you know, creating a model and then testing if it's right and uh, putting people in the center of it, um, right? Like Numerai, it's like this meritocracy. You only make money when you're, when you're actually helping. Um, and so we've almost st planted the seed, just like when Bitcoin started. Uh, and now the incentives are just getting stronger and stronger and stronger to keep to keep building it. Fascinating. You mentioned Elon Musk a couple times in this interview. I'm curious, is there like some like private DM group of like South African entrepreneurs? Yeah. Who, is there? Uh, I wish. No, I haven't ever met no, Elon. There's not. Actually. Uh, but, oh, you haven't. Okay. Yeah, but uh, definitely a big a big fan. I remember watching him when I was a kid on TV and I, I was like, there's a guy making a space company, by like a rocket company by himself. Uh, and I was just like, that is so cool. How big, how big of a vision you could have in the United States as an entrepreneur. And I, I hope that uh, young people live up to that and can keep having big visions. Uh, even if, the regulatory environment makes it a bit harder. Okay, right on. Someone told me this could be totally made up. Forgive me if this is totally wrong, but some someone told me that you're dating Rivatez. Is that true? <laughs> or are you just friends? Or what's what's the story there? Did Riva tell you that? <laughs> no, no, we're, we're not. I don't. I don't. I don't know her personally or anything. Someone else told me that. No, we we've never dated, but we are very uh, close friends. Um, okay, and uh, we we're often trolling each other. So. Maybe I should just say yes, we're dating, but we're not. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, she seems cool. I'm trying to get her on the podcast. I think I reached out to oh, her cool. recently, so maybe maybe you can you can you can hook it up for me. Um, you're an investor in Praxis, I know. Um, we have mutual friends in uh, Praxis. Dryden Brown has been on the podcast before. I think I think I'm very interested in the space broadly. Um, do you think it's possible to basically coordinate with a foreign country and get some land and? build an alternative city or country with, you know, uh, more, you know, preferential policies that are more conducive to innovation. Um, do you, do you, are you bullish on this, on this possibility? Uh, I, so I saw 
um, Dryden yesterday. He was actually at our office party right here. Um, I think one of the things that interests me is like the GDP of some of these countries, how low it is. Uh, like he was talking about Montenegro and others. It's like the whole, I don't, I can't remember the details, but it's something like $5 billion of, of, of GDP or whatever. And like literally if there was one crypto coin company that was there, it would be the biggest thing and bring so much wealth. So if there are any functioning governments out there, uh, it seems like the smartest thing for them to do is to capture the, some, some uh, economic activity by allowing economic activity to, to occur in their countries. So I think Dryden is going to be able to pull that off because the, the demand is really there. I've always been interested in, in like, you know, making a country uh, and seasteading and all that stuff, but it seemed too weird and not going to work. And suddenly with remote work um, and with just general uh, institutional decline, um, the, the time is ripe and we can do this, I think. So I'm very excited to get my passport to Dryden's country whenever it uh, is ready. Okay, awesome. Awesome. I think maybe just the, the final question would be, you know, I have a lot of people in my audience who are you know, uh, based engineers or scientists or philosophers, uh, people who often have wild ideas and are, you know, in one way or another kind of outsiders often uh, on the margins in one way or another, uh, perhaps because their ideas are outside of the Overton window, perhaps just because they're, they're kind of wild and crazy people. You know, as someone who built a rather visionary company with a really, really big idea quite early before any of these themes were cool or normal, you know, do you have any kind of uh, heuristics or advice for, um, you know, maybe younger people who want to do really badass visionary work in technology or engineering, but maybe they're outside the Overton window or they're just outside of, you know, the the powerful circles? I'm just curious if you have any kind of general advice to, to share with my audience. Yeah, well, I always think people um, people water, water down their what they want and what their vision is because they think it'll make it more palatable to an investor because they think investors are risk averse, wrong. They are, VCs are trying to take risks, big risks. Um, so I had a friend ask me, you know, he wanted to start a clothing company and he sent me a, a Facebook message like, can, I, can you invest $5,000? And I was like, the mere fact that it's only 5,000 tells me this is going to be a waste of money. Like you got to ask for more and be like, how can I get 5 million? How can we go global? How do we um, be the world's last hedge fund? You have to have something like that. And those types of uh, ideas also attract capital, but also attract other people because other people are very conscious that their lives are short. They don't want to work for something that isn't going to be substantial. Hell yeah. That's awesome. That That's great parting words right there. And Richard, I just want to thank you for your time. This was really fun, really interesting. I think my audience is really going to like it. And yeah, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of you, a huge fan of Numerai. 
huge congrats on your recent success. I'm sure it feels really good after many years of not being able to share your performance metrics. I feel, I, I'm sure it feels really good to, you know, publish that and show that you're actually really outperforming. So just big congratulations. Thanks for sharing your time today. And I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.